Welcome to 35 West. My name is Ryan Berg, and I'm a senior fellow in the Americas program at CSIS. Mexican, but government. are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina, right. and that's what happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Venezuela is one of the most ecologically endowed countries in the world. It ranks in the top ten globally for biodiversity, is home to magnificent scenery such as Angel Falls, and once cherished its natural heritage by creating nearly thirty environmentally protected areas. Under the Maduro regime, however, the situation has changed drastically. In the Orinoco mining arc, armed operators confront and often exploit indigenous peoples while dumping toxic runoff into the largest rivers in Venezuela, such as the Orinoco and the Caroni rivers. These operations often encroach on protected land. But accountability and effective regulations are in short supply. In fact, the Maduro regime is complicit in some of the worst practices undertaken by PDVSA, the state-owned oil company, and mining operators throughout the country. These actions have ripple effects throughout the Amazon basin, and as a result, millions of people in indigenous communities throughout the eight countries and one territory that comprise the basin are impacted. It is imperative that the international community and civil society increase awareness of the Maduro regime's actions and respond accordingly. We have two wonderful guests today. Cristina Volmer Burelli is a Venezuelan American social entrepreneur and is the founder and executive director of V5 Initiative a nonprofit that leads and supports broad initiatives that promote better and more informed policymaking and governance at the national and international level. Cristina is also a non-resident senior associate with the Americas program at CSIS. And Luis Felipe Duchisela is the senior advisor for indigenous peoples issues at the Bureau for Development, Democracy and Innovation, DDI, at the United States Agency for International Development. In this capacity, Luis Felipe advises the agency on matters relating to the rights, needs, and aspirations of indigenous peoples internationally and coordinates with interagency colleagues. Cristina and Luis Felipe have decades of experience working on environmental and indigenous peoples advocacy throughout the Amazon basin region. Today, Cristina will highlight the Maduro regime's actions and impacts throughout southern Venezuela, and Luis Felipe will share how environmental degradation impacts indigenous peoples throughout the Amazon basin. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Ryan. Great opportunity that you're offering us, and we're looking forward to this podcast. Thank you very much, Ryan. I'm happy to be here, and thank you again for this interview. Now, we often talk about the Maduro regime's human rights abuses and lack of democratic institutions, but we give little attention to his assault on the environment, which has steadily grown worse over the past decade. Christina, could you speak to some of the overall actions and policies relating to environmental degradation that you've seen implemented in Venezuela over the last decade? What are some of the key policies you would identify as perhaps being the most detrimental in Venezuela and the region? Yeah, so I think, you know, before we, we talk about that, I think we just have to quickly remember that Venezuela had an incredible environmental track record during the 20th century and was way ahead of, it, of the times. Um, previous democratic governments had deliberately and with tremendous foresight protected 80% of southern Venezuela. And this was before, you know, uh, climate change, protecting the Amazon, that was fashionable or a thing. Venezuela also had the first Ministry of the Environment for Latin America. So, you know, really incredible. But sadly, a dramatic change came with the advent of Chavismo. And in the early 2000s, Chavez started talking about exploiting southern Venezuela and mining in areas that were protected, well, until then, fairly protected. And they nationalized the mining industry in 2011. 
And then, as you just mentioned, in 2016, Maduro illegally decreed the Orinoco mining belt, and that kicked off a criminal mining policy that not only allows but promotes illegal mining, not only in the mining belt area, but all over southern Venezuela. And I think it's critical to highlight that the Arco Minero, or the Orinoco mining belt, is not just a geographical area, it's a mining policy. And the imposition of these extractive illegal projects in indigenous territories are in violation of the right of consultation and free prior and informed consent of the indigenous peoples and communities that inhabit this area, as well as the violation of human rights and to the right to self-determination as a basic principle of the exercise of collective rights. So the invasion of ancestral lands and territories violates the indigenous people's rights to lands, territories, resources, which they had traditionally owned and occupied. And the state has not complied with its obligation to demarcate and award the corresponding collective indigenous property titles. The Maduro regime has not only destroyed the oil sector, but also the iron, aluminum, and other mineral sectors in southern Venezuela that used to be, you know, big before uh, Chavismo. And this all happened before U.S. and EU sanctions were put in place. And I think that's really key to point out because the regime likes to argue that the sanctions are responsible for these new ecocidal policies that they're pushing. Thank you very much, Christina. It would be helpful if you could give us an overview of the immense cultural and ecological diversity found in Venezuela. We've heard about the impact that it's having on indigenous groups, but can you identify some of the different indigenous groups about which we're talking here? How are the regime's environmental policies impacting different groups? So in southern Venezuela, in addition to the immense biodiversity that you mentioned, we also have cultural, incredible cultural diversity and wealth. There are 27 indigenous ethnicities with distinct cultures, languages, traditions. There's a total of over just 170,000 indigenous people and about 1,500 indigenous communities. And I'm not going to name the 27 ethnicities, but some of the key ones are the Pemong people of basically the traditional guardians of Canaima World Heritage Site, the Yanomami, the Yekwana, and the Sanema in the Upper Orinoco region. And all of these indigenous cultures have amazing basketry, artisanry, knowledge in agroforestry. And sadly, the social impact and the legacy of this new mining policy is leading to the disintegration of the indigenous cultural heritage, knowledge, and customs, because mining is basically driving a wedge into these indigenous communities. And so it's pitting the pro-miners against the anti-miners within the indigenous communities. And that tends to fall along age groups. So the elders tend to be anti-mining, whereas the young people tend to be pro-mining. And sadly, Colombian guerrillas are infiltrating indigenous communities. They're taking women, young men, they're basically doing modern-day slavery because they're uh, bringing indigenous people into the mines, that we're finding child labor. And the presence of these armed groups and Colombian guerrilla groups, along with and in cahoots with the state security forces, have converted the entire region into a permanent violent conflict zone, where we're seeing forced migration and displacement of indigenous people towards Brazil and Colombia. 
And this is having all kinds of impact with regard to health. So we're seeing a terrible health crisis in southern Venezuela. The mining arc is the epicenter of emerging infectious diseases, malaria. Venezuela now holds the world record for growth in malaria. And this was a country that had eradicated malaria in the 50s and 60s. And mercury. There are studies that are showing high concentrations in the bodies of miners and indigenous people because of the use of mercury in the mines. Luis Felipe, I'd like to turn to you for some specifics on the impacts of environmental degradation on indigenous communities, not just in Venezuela, but throughout the Amazon basin writ large. There are increasing confrontations between those encroaching on the environment and those seeking to defend it. Now, Luis Felipe, what factors are leading to increased vulnerability and increased threats for indigenous peoples throughout the Amazon basin, not just in Venezuela? And specifically, how does the lack of territorial recognition and regulation play a role in the vulnerability of indigenous communities in the Amazon basin? First, uh, let me start by, by saying that Amazonia has an area of about 3.1 million square miles. It's about the size of the contiguous uh, United States. Uh, at least it holds 10% of the planet's uh, biodiversity, more than any other terrestrial ecosystem. So it's a critically important biome in the world of which uh, indigenous territories cover one-third of the Amazon. Uh, it's home to about 2.5 million people who belong to 390 indigenous uh, people's ethnicities, of which about 185 are uncontacted indigenous peoples. So it's a, it's a critical region for, for the entire world, which has been protected by the indigenous peoples throughout uh, millennia. I would say that perhaps... The main problems that, that indigenous peoples face is, uh, on the one hand, I think what Christina alluded to also is the lack of recognition of the rights of indigenous peoples over their land and territories, not only at the um, legal level or constitutional level, but in practice. Also, the rights to their special relationship that they have with natural resources, their livelihoods, their culture, uh, their cosmovision, etc. So I would start there, you know, the lack of uh, recognition. Now, there's been a lot of progress made in the last few decades uh, in many countries, some of which are Amazonian countries like Colombia and Ecuador, Peru, etc. But still, there is a huge gap in, in regard to the converting that or, or actually applying those laws into actual practice. I would say perhaps also that the um, governance structure of the indigenous peoples' organizations and networks, all the way from the communities to the organizations at the national level, it's another important aspect that needs to be supported by the governments and also by the international community, because that's what will allow indigenous peoples to continue to be stewards of the Amazon. Many of the impacts that the Maduro regime is having, as Christina mentioned, are not contained within Venezuela's borders. So Luis Felipe, I'd like to ask you which aspects of Venezuela's environmental degradation do you think are having some of the greatest impact throughout the Amazon basin, specifically on indigenous communities? Yeah, no, the situation in Venezuela apparently has reached a, you know, exacerbated crisis or situation for indigenous peoples uh, because of, uh, Christina was explaining, uh, many of those aspects we see happening also in other Amazonian countries 
but to a much lesser degree. For instance, the whole, the whole issue of extractive industries is happening really in the entire Amazon, and it's a problem for the indigenous peoples around the world. You know, extractive industry, particularly oil and mining and gas. However, what's happening in the Amazon, and I, I, I understand it in, a, in a more exacerbated way in Venezuela, is when governments allow for illegal activities, illegal mining, illegal logging, uh, in uh, indigenous peoples' territories, or even are complicit of, of those, it's the worst situation that can happen for, for indigenous peoples. The illegal activities uh, of the, in the extractive industries, to me, it's, it's, it's one of the, I would say, worst, worst situations that indigenous peoples uh, face. Uh, some of the things that Christina was explaining, the destruction of the fiber of the indigenous people's communities, you know, abandoning and uh, of uh, indigenous communities, thereby losing their culture is uh, terrible for indigenous peoples. So I would say that governments have a huge responsibility in terms of ensuring that indigenous peoples have the appropriate public policies that will allow, for instance, for consultations, for free prior and informed consent. The international community also has a responsibility in terms, especially the multilaterals like the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the CAF, etc., to ensure that business and corporations do apply international safeguards for indigenous peoples. The, the, the main one of those is free prior informed consent. So there is a great number of uh, tools and uh, international uh, legal instruments that allow for the protection of indigenous peoples. But if governments do not use them or are actually somehow promoting the illegal activities, then it's the worst situation that indigenous peoples can face. The issue of ecological conservation and human rights really goes hand in hand. A comprehensive response, whether carried out on the ground by civil society or through the international community and international organizations, must consider both issues. Luis Felipe, another issue that comes to mind as we speak about environmental degradation is climate change. What role do you see for indigenous communities playing in the international response to climate change? How can indigenous leaders, many of whom are already highly active on the issue of climate change, be empowered and included in climate change responses? Yeah, this is a, a very important question. I think uh, that it, it's uh, quite evident that uh, indigenous peoples have been uh, wonderful stewards of forests and, and other critical ecosystems, not only in the Amazon, but, but throughout the world. And the entire humanity benefits from the indigenous peoples having done that through so many thousands of years. Just for the case of the Amazon, there are approximately 214 million hectares of indigenous uh, lands in the Amazon. And studies indicate that approximately 200 million metric tons of CO2 per year can be avoided in terms of carbon emissions coming from those 214 million hectares of indigenous lands. So this is a huge amount of carbon uh, emissions uh, reduction calculated out of the indigenous lands in the Amazon, which goes to show the, the critical importance of strengthening the, the governance and the stewardship on the part of uh, indigenous peoples. By the same token, indigenous peoples are one of the main victims of uh, climate change for the, due to you know, uh, floods and uh, disasters uh, 
uh, occurring in their ecosystems, etc. Uh, loss of livelihoods, traditional products. So uh, indigenous peoples do play a, a critical role for, for climate change. And I think that even though there has been increasingly a stronger voice on the part of indigenous peoples globally, especially at the conference of the parties uh, at the, of the UN every, every end of year. However, I, I feel that uh, we're still far from really providing the appropriate support and assistance to indigenous peoples to uh, lead the way in, in terms of uh, climate action so that they can not only sustain their role as stewards, uh, critical ecosystems like the Amazon, but I would say also to connect that to broader human rights, you know, to strengthen their own um, communities, their own livelihoods, health and education, and the right to um, have self-determined uh, economic development to align their economies to the modern world in a better way, in a sustainable way, with full respect for their identity and their rights. So all those things are linked together. But the, I would say that the, perhaps the more worrisome factor is that if indigenous peoples are weakened or they lose their uh, capacity to be stewards of the Amazon, then it's, uh, it's, it would be terrible not only for them, but for the entire planet. Christina, I want to turn back to you. Uh, looking ahead to the long-term recovery, how can we restore the thriving, sustainable economy that people in Venezuela and the Amazon basin writ large used to enjoy? How do we empower civil society groups and indigenous communities themselves to withstand the impacts of mining, pollution, and organized crime that we've talked about over the course of this podcast? And how do we do that in the long term? I think that's a critical question, and, and especially in light of the fact that Venezuela now boasts probably the worst environmental crisis and ecocide in the hemisphere, and that's worse than Brazil. And, and we don't really have time to go into the reasons for that, but a recently published OECD report came out last week on the Venezuelan gold flows shows that criminals have encroached on the gold mining sector. The Maduro regime is in partnership with Colombian guerrilla and that all this illicit gold is funding international terrorism. So I highly recommend that, you know, people take a look at this report. And in particular, unfortunately, uh, none of the big international environmental organizations seem to be concerned about this Venezuelan situation. And, and, and almost they seem to be turning a blind eye to the, to the Maduro regime's mining and environmental policies. I think it's critical that the international community elevate the visibility of this tragedy and ensure that there are real consequences for the Maduro regime if this ecocide and if this criminal mining policy continues, but also if the regime continues to harass and threaten civil society groups, indigenous communities. You know, the world is starting to notice. Now, Internally in Venezuela, after we had been completely, you know, we had an, an Amazonian region that was sustainable and thriving up until the early 2000s, now the perception is that mining is the only solution to Venezuela's economic disaster. And that is a very narrow view. And really, you know, after centuries, eons, when mining was not the option for Venezuela in the Amazonian region, we need to remember that this was the case. And we need to, you know, make sure that international funders and the community start supporting sustainable activities and sustainable development in the Amazonia and Guyana Shield region of Venezuela. 
And this is difficult, obviously, because Venezuela is not an easy place to work for obvious reasons, but it's not impossible. And I have to say, it's very rewarding. And one case in point that I'd like to highlight is an amazing agroforestry project with the Pimong indigenous people in Canaima World Heritage Site, which is called the Porocata Project. And it was just selected as one of the 15 top innovators by the World Economic Forum and the Trillion Trees Amazon Bioeconomy Challenge. So this is super exciting and it just highlights that this kind of project is possible in Venezuela and we just need to make international funders and the community aware of this and start getting support. Thank you, Christina. Luis Felipe, is there something that we did not cover? Is there anything that you would like to add very briefly? Yes, one one thing that I think is important, and it's perhaps a misconception, is in regard to the capacity of indigenous peoples to lead the way and address the climate crisis, you know, in a very effective way. I think that that's a misconception. And, I, and, and at USAID, for instance, with our new uh, policy on promoting the rights of indigenous peoples and other projects that we're reporting and starting, such as the Amazon Indigenous Rights and Resources Project, the, the strengthening capacities of indigenous organizations in the Amazon and several other projects, inclusion for peace in Colombia, etc. I think that we're clearly seeing that with proper support and assistance in terms of capacity building in technical areas, in managerial, financial management, etc., and also in um, you know fostering an enabling environment with uh, national governments, it's absolutely possible, and it's, there are huge opportunities for countries to really empower indigenous peoples' organizations and their leaders to take on this role. You know, it's a very proactive and uh, a positive role of addressing climate issues, but also to push the economy of of their own countries. You know, in a legal way and in a sustainable way. So I, I'd like to highlight that and we at USAID as, as well as with some, some of the other agencies and multilaterals are uh, working hard at that. Thank you, Luis Felipe. Cristina, is there something that we didn't cover or anything else you would like to add very briefly before we close? Yeah, I mean, on a, on a positive note, you know, just adding to what Luis Felipe has just mentioned and, and, and the mention that I did previously about this agroforestry project in Venezuela, in Amazonian region, the Guyana Shield region, we really need to make sure that in Venezuela, people shift the mentality and start you know, remembering the types of sustainable activities that used to take place in the 20th century. And there are Many small projects going on, but obviously they're not well known. It's very difficult for indigenous communities in Venezuela to be heard on the international stage. So really, you know, on the one hand, it's important to denounce what's going on. But on the other hand, I think it's really important to delve into what's going on on the ground and seek these opportunities. I think, you know, we have to do both. And I think it's important for politicians in Venezuela on both sides of the aisle, the Chavista, not Chavista, to understand that mining in one of the most biodiverse areas in the world is simply not viable. And that will never take Venezuela out of its economic situation. We're going to have to look for more creative and sustainable ways to solve the situation. 
Luis Felipe Ducisela of USAID and Cristina Volmer Burelli of V5 Initiative, thank you for joining us today on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. <laughs>